brought it up, the registration card. Um, don't worry, this is not a tool to get you on a mass marketing list. We will not sell it. We won't make any money on it. We won't even spend tons and tons of time trying to send you junk mail because I don't have time to do that. <laughs> and I don't enjoy it when people send me junk mail. This is just for me. I want to know who's coming, what kind of materials I need to have available. And it's also helpful to understand the kind of people that are here. People that, are, that come to these programs come from all different backgrounds. Um, so we might have people that are Muslim or Jewish or Catholic or Protestant from all kinds of denominations. We might have some people that are Muslim or, in, you know, who knows what the background is. So it'd be helpful to, to understand a little bit about you. So if you don't mind, it's not required, but uh, fill out that registration card. And if you could do that now, um, that would be really great. D- does anybody need a pencil or a pen? We can have our ushers grab some for you. Just raise your hand to fill that out. No? Okay. Well, if you've, if you've filled it out, or once it is filled out, please pass that to the center aisle, and then our ushers will pick that up um, here just in a minute. I'll give you a minute to fill it out. Oh, I, I forgot to mention, before you hand it in, um, uh, there's this little tag, right? So the big part, I want to keep that. The little part, I want you to keep. Um, that's, that's for you to put on your, um, your keychain or in your wallet or whatever. And the next night you come, we'll get you checked in pretty quickly with that. And, and just so you know, it has a barcode on it. Um, don't worry. We're going to talk about the mark of the beast before long. And, and the barcode is not the mark of the beast. These, these little lines, all they are are little ways the computer can read a number. And this number was, says 10792. Um, so not even close to anything related to <laughs> the mark of the beast. So, but we'll cover that in another night. So go ahead and hand them to the center. And ushers, can you come forward and, and pick those up? All right. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you um, sharing a little bit of info with me. I, I, it helps me as, uh, uh, to get to know and also to pray for you guys. Um, it's nice to pray for you by name. And if you, if you haven't finished filling it out when the ushers are done, it's okay. You can hand it to the, um, to the greeters at the end, and that'll be fine, too. Well, as they do that, what I'd like to do, you know, we, we have people from all different backgrounds, but my background religiously is a Christian. And what I like to do before I study the Bible is I like to pray. So let's um, stop for just a minute, bow our heads, and have a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the people that have come here tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to share your word and for the freedom to study. I pray that you bless my thoughts so that I can be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, I want to share one of the biggest questions in the universe. It's, uh, it's one of these questions that uh, is life-changing when we understand the answer to it. And it's the, the question, is there meaning or direction for existence? Is there a God? Is there a purpose for this world? And uh, I think that the Bible has an answer to this subject. It has an answer, but... Uh, 
I'd like to take you to a little bit different direction first, something that you probably wouldn't have expected me to go to. Um, but in order to understand where we're going to go in the Bible, I think this is helpful, some helpful historical context. Do you know these two men? Yeah, these are the Duke of Wellington and Napoleon. Now, you might know that these two men met at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. That's pretty common knowledge. But um, what you might not know is that these two men were fairly equally matched. They were both born in 1769. They were both born on an island. Both of them lost their fathers in early childhood. Both had three sisters and four brothers. They both went to the same military school in France at the same time. Um, And both of them became lieutenants, uh, lieutenant colonels, within a day of each other. They both were really good at mathematics, and of course, they were both really good at commanding large armies. But despite the fact that they were so evenly matched, the Duke of Wellington won and Napoleon lost. And, and the question is why? Historians have all kinds of suggestions for why. One would be that the geography of the battlefield favored the Duke of Wellington and his side, or, or maybe it's uh, Napoleon lost because the Prussian army came in and helped the Duke of Wellington out, um, or, or maybe it was because Napoleon was tired. He'd just come back um, from uh, Russia, and his troops were just worn out, and they were, they were too tired. But I would like to suggest that uh, there might be another reason that he lost, one that historians might um, overlook. And, and the place that we get to the reason for him losing is, is 600 years before Jesus was born in the bedroom of a man who was the king, the emperor really, of the empire of Babylon. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And he was the ruler of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And, and he lived about 2,600 years ago, so it's been a while back. But uh, one night, he woke up, and he was, you know, have you have had one of those dreams where you're just, like, anxious? He had one of those dreams. And, uh, and he knew something was wrong. He didn't quite understand what, but he knew something was wrong, and it scared him pretty badly. And... If you, are, if you have your Bible, what I'd like you to do is turn to Daniel, kind of roughly in the middle, a little past the middle of the Bible. Turn to Daniel, um, right after the book of Ezekiel, and, and put your finger in chapter 2, because that's where we're going to be sitting for just a minute. Um, Daniel chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 1. And it says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. This, just so you know, is a man who has recently conquered the then-known world. Without much trouble, even. He took his armies around. And not only does he conquer the world, but he, he brings all of these nations into his council, and they become friends with Babylon. They, they not necessarily want him to be their emperor, but they're at least developing a similar culture. This is a guy who doesn't have fear, and yet this dream brings some fear up. And so he, uh, he has this dream, and uh, he decides to call his wise men. It's the middle of the night. Can you imagine being one of those wise men? You get a knock on the door. 
sound asleep, and suddenly you have to go to the king's chambers. And it's probably not a good idea, like probably not a good news if you've got to go to the king's chambers in the middle of the night. And, uh, and these, were, these were the, they were called the Chaldeans and the Magi. I mean, we get the word magician from Magi. Um, these were the, the, the scientists and the astronomers, astrologers to the, the, the religious leaders of Babylon. And, and they were really the smartest people in the land. And so he brings these people in, and uh, the Bible continues, and it says, So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans spoke to the king, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and, and we'll give you the interpretation. And they're thinking, oh, this is easy. Whew, we thought it might be a stressful thing, but it's just a dream. Uh, don't worry, king, tell us the dream. We'll go get our dream books and tell you what the interpretation is. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he kind of smells a rat. And maybe it's the substance of the dream that makes him think, this is really important, I need the right answer. Um, But for whatever reason, he stops and he says, wait a second. Um, Instead of me telling you the dream, why why don't you tell me the dream? and its interpretation. I, I, want, I want men that are trustworthy, can I trust you, to know the interpretation of this dream? And so, and keep reading there, it says, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Have you ever had a challenge at work and thought, I need more of this. I I need some extra challenge in my day. Uh, This is not what the Chaldeans were thinking. (laughs) They were were in a panic. They huddle around and they're like, what do we do? What do we do? And and somebody decides they're going to be the diplomatic one to break the news to the king. Um, And so they answer, let the king tell his servants the dream, we'll give you its interpretation. Trying to persuade him, come on, just tell me the dream. And, and he says, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you, will, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed, till I stop thinking about it. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. <laughs> this is not a comfortable place for the Chaldeans to be in, and they, they don't know what to do. And they're thinking about it and decide that, that they're going to tell the king what's really going on. And, and they say it like this. Well, I should point out, it's impossible for the Chaldeans to know what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's head. They can't do what the king wants them to do. The Bible says that only the Lord knows the hearts of the sons of men. People, we don't know each other's thoughts. If you're married, you know that this is the case because um, men, your wives have expected things but never told you about them and then they got upset with you for having not done what you expected them to do but didn't communicate, right? Anybody had that happen? Not just me? Um, it happens the other way around too. Husbands, we, we expect things that we don't tell our wives and, and that causes relationship problems too. But only God knows the heart and the Chaldeans know this. And so here's what they say. 
It's a difficult thing that the king requests. And there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not here, is not with flesh. I mean, at this, the king just blows his top. He has had it with these lying, scheming, political um, peons in front of him. He is done with them. And here's what he says. The king was angry and furious, and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the guards go around, and they start to, they start to collect all of the wise men. Obviously, not all of them are at this, in the chambers at the moment, but he, they start to collect all the wise men of Babylon for the, um, uh, maybe a, a sudden retirement party that they weren't expecting. And while they're out collecting wise men, um, they knock on the the door of one particular young man named Daniel. Now, it's important to know that Daniel is not a Babylonian. Daniel happens to be uh, royalty, uh, the son of some royal in in the land of Israel. He's a Hebrew. And uh, when Babylon had conquered uh, Israel and Jerusalem, they had taken some captives, a bunch of them actually. And Daniel was one of the early captives. And because he's royalty, they, they kind of wanted him to be an influence for the, the rest of the Jews that are coming into Babylon as captives. And they really want them to be an inculturator. <laughs> not sure if that's a word, but they, they want Daniel to help the rest of these people to become like Babylon and the Babylonians. And so they, they invite Daniel in and they give him uh, special education and, and they, well, he ends up being a really smart guy. And because he's so intelligent and he's, he's bright, they, they bring him in as a Chaldean, a wise man. And so he's not in the council at the time of the dream thing, but they go knocking on his door to take him to this retirement party anyway. And what happens uh, when, when this happens, this guy named Arioch knocks on his door and he says, come on, Daniel, we've got to go. Go where, Daniel says. Well, it's kind of bad news. And Daniel says, take me to the king. And in verse 16 of Daniel chapter 2, the Bible says, so Daniel went in and asked the king to have time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. The very thing that the other Chaldeans could not get, time, was what Daniel asked for. Daniel, he was a different kind of guy. And, And you've met them. They're the people with character, the kind of person you can trust, that when they say something, they'll do it, um, that they're going to be honest with you even when it hurts them. You know the kind. Character. Character matters. And Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel as a guy that he can count on. And when he sees Daniel in front of him and Daniel asks for time, he says, okay, I'll give you some time. And, And so Daniel goes to make the best of the time that Nebuchadnezzar has given him. He does not consult the star charts. He does not cut a a pig in half and examine its entrails. He, He does not enter into a seance. What do you think he does? He he does the same thing that our ancestors for thousands of years have done. He prays to the God of heaven. Now, not only does he pray, but he asks his three friends to come and pray. And they pray all night. And God gives them an answer. And the next day, he comes to the king 
tells Arioch, take me back to the king. And in verse 27, he says this, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. I mean, he's just kind of making the same argument the other Chaldeans made, isn't he? We can't do this. But then he adds this one point, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Our question was, is there a God? Is there a reason for our existence, a purpose, a direction that we're going in? Is this whole earth thing just a a blue ball that we're rolling around on until we become compost? Or is there something more significant? And Daniel says, there is a God in heaven. This is Daniel's answer, but he doesn't just claim it. He then goes on to prove it. Would you like to hear the proof? Here's what the Bible says. And he has made known to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its bellies and thighs of bronze, its legs of of uh, iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So what does he see in his dream? He sees a big tall man, a metal man. And, and let's just run through these real quick. The head was of what? Gold, good. And the chest and arms were made of what? Okay. And then the belly and thighs? Bronze. And then the legs? Iron. And then the feet were iron mixed with clay. Okay. So this is an interesting dream. I'd have to say my dreams are never quite this clear. And, and they typically, they, they kind of have weird elements that kind of merge and, 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 I don't know, change and warp over time as the dream goes on. I don't know how long dreams are. They're probably an instant, but, but it seems like, you know, the time just changes. But this is a clear dream. And uh, so it's, it's, it's unique. It's not just the pizza he had the night before, is it? There's something going on here. So he he continues and says, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth." It would be a good idea if you wanted to underscore um, a uh, a principle. Uh, If the Bible spends more time talking about something, it probably intends for you to spend more time thinking about it. And the most time that the Bible spent in this dream is on that last little part. We'll come back to it, though, I promise. We're not going to focus on it tonight, but we'll come back to it. Um, So this... this, uh, uh, dream is, is uh, presented, and, uh, and I can just imagine that throne room was quiet. I bet you could hear a pin drop. What is Nebuchadnezzar going to do? And, and I'm sure he leans forward, and, and he says, that's it. That's exactly what I dreamed. But, but what does it mean? I mean, thank you for telling me the dream. What does it mean? And now Daniel has a particularly difficult task because he's about to tell a king, a king that thinks he rules the world, that he's going to die. 
And that's not a pleasant message to give a king, from what I understand. Never had to try, but I've, uh, from what I understand, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. But before we, before we look at the interpretation, I just want to underscore one other principle. If you were to read this passage, uh, you might come to all kinds of interesting ideas. You might read, uh, as somebody in North America, you might read about the gold, the head of gold, and think, oh man, that must be Fort Knox. And read about the silver and say, oh, that's probably talking about like the silver mines in Montana. You could come to interesting conclusions when you read prophecy that has symbols. So here's the principle. Let the Bible tell you what it means. See, God does not have a problem expressing himself. It is not a struggle for him to communicate what he means. If only we would just read a little further. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the next, uh, the next little part here, because the Bible is going to interpret itself, and Daniel is going to tell us what it means. It might. Are we, are we in a place where this will work? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, so he continues on. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Now, notice what he just said there. You might think that you conquered the world, but you didn't really. God gave the world to you. This is a really important distinction and one that might have made him lose his head. The fact that Daniel has the, the character to communicate tr- this true thing, even when it might hurt, is really quite significant. But keep reading. Wherever children of men dwell, or beasts of the field, or birds of the heavens, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Does anybody need the heater on right now? Should we, should we turn it down so it doesn't distract? That's all right. If you need, if you need the heat, it's okay. Just raise your hand and we'll, we'll leave it there. All right. So, you are this head of gold. Do, do you see the answer? What is the head of gold? What does it represent? It it represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom that he's ruler over. So the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. And if we look back in history, it's not hard to find. You can look at it on Wikipedia. I I looked at it just the other day. 605 to 539, the Neo-Babylonian Empire ruled until... Well, let me ask you this. Is Babylon some emperor in the Babylonian city in Iraq, are they the ruler of the world today? No. So, there, there's, there's something else coming. There's another kingdom after Babylon. And um, now I, I should say this, Babylon, Babylon was a golden city. It was a very wealthy, very influential city. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was known as a builder. In fact, we have thousands and thousands of bricks that have the inscription of Nebuchadnezzar on them. Um, they, they stamped every brick that they built things in Nebuchadnezzar's empire with, with this stamp so that w- if they were torn down, everybody would know this was Nebuchadnezzar's building. He was a builder. He built lots of things. He uh, had tons and tons and tons, literally tons and tons of gold, and he covered things with gold. Uh, you can see uh, amazing uh, artifacts from, Nebu- uh, from Babylon with gold all over them. So the fact that the Bible connects gold with Babylon shouldn't surprise any of us. 
And some suggest that it was one of the wealthiest empires the world has ever known. And, and maybe that's why some people would say when you see somebody that's in extreme excess, that, uh, that, that's like Babylonian. Well, Babylon has lots and lots of influence. Not only was it a conqueror, but it also had a big culture that influenced even you and me today. Um, Babylon, well, you and I, we count in, in the decimal system. So we count up to 10 and then we add another, another number, right? The Babylonians counted to 60. And even today, we still have the 60 system. We have 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in a minute. Um, the circle is 360 degrees. So lots of influence in, math, in mathematics from Babylon. Now, Babylon doesn't last forever. Um, does anybody know what happens after Babylon? Daniel says, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, but what kingdom comes after Babylon? Does anybody know? Persia, Medo-Persia, yes. And this, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire rules from 539 to 331. Um, the Medes and the Persians come in in 539 under the, the general Cyrus, and they conquer Babylon. And this was a, a pretty amazing um, feat that happened. Babylon was a city that was, uh, had, had three walls, and they were really high, the kind of thing that you couldn't scale and that was really well fortified at the top. And it, they had lots of food. I mean, at one point, they, when um, in, in another situation, there was, they were throwing food out, um, at the people that were um, sieging the city of Babylon. They were laughing at them because they had so much food, they could throw it out and give it away to the soldiers who were, who were uh, causing a siege. They had water um, supplied through a river right there that running through the, the Euphrates River, running through Babylon. So they didn't have to worry about water at all. Well, um, Cyrus comes with his army, gets close to the city, and realizes that this is a problem. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about it another time, how exactly he does it. But he ends up diverting the river, enough of the water, um, away so that he was able to take his soldiers right through the, the river under the gates that uh, they normally had there to prevent boats from getting in and, and um, having their way in Babylon. Well, Cyrus gets in, conquers the city, and it's a done deal. Babylon is over. And then Daniel says, another third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Um, so who was the kingdom that defeated the Persians in the battle of Arbella in 331 BC? Greece. Yeah, Greece is the next thing. And this was the, the Macedonians under um, Alexander the Great, Alexander is a young man. Before he was 32, in just four years, he conquered 2 million square miles, 20 million uh, um, people in, in his uh, domain. And he ends up marching his, his soldiers all the way to the edge of the, the water in the Indian Ocean. And he says, well, the, the, the records say that he cried because there was nothing else to conquer. And so he turns his soldiers around and marched them back. And on their way back, he ends up in Babylon, the ruined city by this time, Babylon. And uh, there by the walls, 
he uh, went to sleep one night and never woke up again. Some historians suggest that he died from alcohol poisoning, drunk himself to death. The conqueror of the world couldn't conquer himself. Hmm. The Bible was absolutely right. There is a third kingdom after Medo-Persia. But uh, let me ask you this. Does Alexander or one of his sons still rule the world today? Is Greece the world-conquering empire today? No. The last thing we heard was they went bankrupt, right? <laughs> um, so, so what's next? Verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, the kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Okay, history buffs, who comes after Greece? Rome. All right, so Rome is this legs of iron. Now, today we think like Greeks and we act like Romans. The Greeks and the Romans, have, we've, they've carried down these thoughts. Um, in fact, the guy in, um, have you ever heard of Edward Gibbon? He wrote a, a, a long series, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Um, great historian. This is what he wrote. The images of gold, silver, or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. Sounds like somebody was reading Daniel. Okay, so far we've got a head of gold, we've got a chest and arms of silver, we've got the legs, or the the waist of bronze, the legs of iron, and uh, is there anything else, or is that it? Does Rome still rule the world today? No, it doesn't. So he continues on. Um, did I? Okay. And whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Now, um, is, is that true? Did, did Rome divide? It, it did. It first divided into two parts, eastern and western Rome. And, and the eastern lasted a little bit longer than the western part. But the Bible kind of shifts, and it focuses its attention on the western part. And uh, notice where it says, oops, I was just there. I am hitting the wrong button. Okay, and as of the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. How many, uh, how many toes do you have? Ten? I know a guy who has nine, but that was because he lost one in a motorcycle accident. <laughs> Most of us are born with ten toes. Okay? So when it talks about the toes, um, did, did Rome kind of end up in ten parts? It did. Um, it, it divided um, into ten parts. And notice that um, these, these are kind of the history's look at the ten toes. Uh, mostly Western Empire, and we'll talk about why that is, but uh, Western Rome ends up being divided into the Anglo-Saxons, which are uh, become eventually the, the Brits, and um, then there's the, um, the Franks. Guess who they become? The French, very good. And you've got the Visigoths. They eventually become the Spanish. And then there's the Suevi, who become the Portuguese. And then there's the Burgundies in the region that eventually becomes Switzerland. And the Alamanni, who eventually move north and become Germans. And you've got Lombards, and they go south. They become Italians. And Ostrogoths, Heruli, and Vandals, they don't exist anymore. They, they, 
um, were overcome at some point in history and, and they no longer exist. So now the dream's getting really good. Um, and what you're about to read is the thing that changes the course of history from that moment on. And you read it in verse 33. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. What is Daniel saying? What what is this dream suggesting? It's saying that once Rome divides, there's never going to be another united empire in that area of the world again. No more Roman Empire. Nothing will ever succeed the Roman Empire like Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, or Rome. And if you go back into history, you find that that's true. By the time Queen Victoria sat on her throne, she was called the, um, the grandmother of all Europe. Why? Because for generations... They had been intermarrying one country's monarchy with another country's monarchy. So by the time Queen Victoria was on the throne, she was literally related to every other um, royal in Europe. Hmm. But when you think about this uh, process, um, there's a lot of names through history that we could look at. People who tried to do what the Bible said couldn't be done. They tried to connect mingling the the seed of men um, or conquering or some other way. They tried to unite Europe, and each time they never did. So, for example, here's um, one of the names. Um, Have you heard of Charlemagne? Charlemagne tried to conquer Europe. He did a pretty good job of trying to become an emperor again, and he got lots of, lots of these nations together, and there's more peace because he was in control. Um, by 774, he was the king in Italy. By 800, he conquered most of Western Europe. And, uh, and then he tried to give his empire to his two oldest sons, who both ended up dying. Uh, before he did. So that didn't work out. So he gave it to his youngest son and a grandson, an illegitimate grandson, and neither of them were competent, and it quickly went back to warring tribes again. They, they called him the father of Europe, but uh, it didn't last very long, and he didn't even finish while he was there. And the reason he didn't finish is because Daniel said, they shall not adhere to one another. And then you've got Charles V, and uh, in 1519, he was elected the Holy Roman Emperor. The people were desperate for unity, and uh, he tried. He, he got about a, a million and a half square, kilometer, square miles under his rulership. Um, it was looking pretty good. He might get there, but then it just, well, it went all downhill, he was a really great warrior. He was an excellent emperor. He, he really did the right things until he got gout, and, uh, and then he got malaria, and then he died, and then he couldn't continue what he had, had started. And it's because God said, they shall not cling to one another. And when God says something, let me just ask this, can you and I change his mind It's kind of set in stone when God says, this is what will happen. But then you have Louis XIV. Louis XIV, called the Sun King, was so arrogant, he said, I am the state. That's Louis XIV. 
Um, under him, France became the largest power in Europe. And uh, he, he um, tried to unite Spain and France. And there's movies and TV series that are done about this. And it just didn't work. It, it uh, ended up um, resulting in what's called the War of Spanish Succession. And uh, he ended up losing. Why did he lose? Was it because he wasn't smart enough? Was it because he was a bad, uh, a bad general? No. He lost because God said they will not cling to one another. Divided Europe is never going to be joined again. And then there was Napoleon. You've, I'm sure, heard of his name before. And Napoleon, he's also from France, and uh, he almost united Europe. And the guy was very arrogant. Um, he got a lot of Europe united, um, ended up trying to, to overthrow all these different um, uh, royal families and get people united under him, and they were pretty excited about Napoleon. Um, then uh, he was going to be crowned the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was there with the Pope, and the Pope was going to put the wreath on his head, and, and you know what he did? He reached out, and he took that wreath from the Pope and put it on his own head. So I'm going to crown myself, he says. That was the kind of guy he was. In 1812, he took 600,000 men, and he marched them north into Russia. But uh, he didn't count on Russian winters. And so in, uh, he, he took 600,000 in, and uh, by the time the winter was over, he had 100,000 left. Half a million soldiers died from that winter. He went into exile. He came back out. He ends up in the Battle of Waterloo, where he loses for the last time. And so I'm going to ask you again, like I asked you at the beginning, why did Napoleon lose? Was it because he, his soldiers were tired? Was it because that he was uh, um, maybe not as good of a general or didn't have the advantage on the battlefield? Why did Napoleon lose? He lost because God said he would, because God said they will not cling to one another. He was trying to accomplish something God had said couldn't be done, and he wasn't the last one. If you go to the 21st, 20th century, you find World War I, Kaiser Wilhelm is um, trying to unite Europe. He's conquering and, and moving through, and um, England was losing, and so the British, out of desperation, um, get the... Um, Americans on the phone, and uh, President Wilson said, that's not our war. No, thank you. But uh, the Kaiser, Germany, found out that Britain was, was courting America, and they got scared. And so they sent a communication to Mexico and told Mexico that they would support them if Mexico went to war with America so that America would be distracted and not come across the water, right? And uh, said, take Arizona, take New Mexico, take Texas. It can be your land again, and we'll give you whatever support we can. Well, on the way, that communication was intercepted. Britain found it. They somehow uh, deciphered it, and then they told America about it. And you know what President Wilson said? He said, you want to attack America? Well, we're going to come and conquer you. And America got into World War I, and pretty soon Germany lost. I mean, pretty soon it was a pretty, pretty bad battle. I'm not saying it was short, but um, Germany lost because the Zimmerman telegram was intercepted. So let me ask you, why was the Zimmerman telegram intercepted? 
because God said they will not cling one to another. Hmm. There was a young soldier in the Kaiser's army, a guy named Adolf Hitler. And Adolf Hitler was so ashamed from what had happened in, in the defeat of the German army that he, he said, I'll finish what Napoleon started. I'll build an empire, a Reich, that will last a thousand years. That was Adolf Hitler. And you know something? I think he knew he was defying God. There are stories that, uh, unverified stories, but stories that people had brought Daniel to, to Adolf Hitler and showed it to him. And so one day he's uh, talking to the people and he says this, you see my people, we do not need anything from God. We do not ask him for anything except that he may let us alone. We want to fight our own war with our own guns without God. We want to gain our victory without the help of God. And, of course, he couldn't have gained that victory with the help of God, so might as well try without, right? Hmm. World War II didn't work out for Adolf Hitler. Then there was communism. Communism tried uh, to to win the battle. They knew they had to conquer the world in order to make communism work, and and they they had something like a third of the landmass of earth under communist control at one point. Um, But it did not stick around. It didn't work. Why? Because God says they shall not cling one to another. Hmm. And, uh, and then you have the whole European Union thing. Have you heard about this? Like when the European Union was getting going, I heard a lot of people talking about a new world order and how this was going to be united Europe again. And, and, and uh, there was certain excitement and certain fears. Um, some people were thinking it was a fulfillment of prophecy. A lot of people were, in fact. Um, but what do you see in the European Union today? It's not unity, is it? Uh, you've got people, you've, you've got some countries that are leaving, some, some that aren't allowed to join. Um, you've got wealthy countries and bankrupt countries. At best, it's a, it's a monetary agreement. Um, and, and really, it, it just underscores the divisions that are still there in those feet of iron and clay, some strong and some weak, and they won't adhere one to another. But um, does that mean there's never, ever going to be another world empire? No. But yes, because the next thing that happens isn't, it's not normal. It's not in the same line. It's not head and shoulders and waist and legs and feet and then something else. It's like an entirely different thing happens. And what you find is in the days of, the king, of these kings, these kings being the ten toes kings, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Remember the rock that comes out? Something completely different. It's not even metal. It's not from the same thing. It's from, from left field comes this rock and it hits the feet of iron and clay and destroys them, putting them into powder. And, and this is what Daniel says that means. God is going to set up his kingdom, a different kind of kingdom. And it says, And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand forever. There is going to be a kingdom that, that will rule the world, a kingdom that will last forever, but it is not a kingdom like we put together, not the, not the same kind of thing. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, this is Matthew 25, 
and all his holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. This is the different kingdom. It's the second coming of Jesus. It's the the change that happens. The rock that comes out of that mountain is the rock Christ Jesus. And the kingdom that he sets up is is, is a spiritual kingdom that will not ever go away. Now, think about Daniel chapter 2. Has has, uh, everything in Daniel chapter 2 happened already? Yeah, except for this one thing, right? Everything else has already happened. So that means that you and I, we're living in the the toenails of this, uh, this statue. We're living at the very end of this prophecy. And what happens next? What's the next thing that happens prophetically according to Daniel 2? The stone that comes from the mountain, the kingdom of God gets set up. The second coming of Jesus is the next thing that happens prophetically in this vision. So I've got to ask you, what are you investing in? I have a, I have a little app on my phone called Robinhood, and it allows you to do um, free trades. And so once or twice I've put in $5. And uh, so I own like... 0.001 shares of Tesla or something like that. <laughs> what, what do you put your money into? What do you put your time into? I want to tell you this. What you and I build will not last. It, it's not of eternal significance. The only thing the Bible says will last is the kingdom that God sets up. Everything else gets shattered and turned to dust. So the question I have to ask you is, what are you investing in? What are you banking on in your life? Take a look at your life, and, and I think that you'll recognize there's something better. Have you ever gone on a trip and been at somebody else's house, or even worse yet, in a hotel, and gotten sick? It's a horrible feeling. You get the fever and the runny nose and the coughing and the headache and, and, uh, and, and you, you try to curl up in the blankets, but they're not your blankets. And, and you know, in the back of your head, you know there's a home somewhere else. There's a wife or a husband somewhere else. There's, there's your comfortable bed somewhere else. This is not your home and it's just not, it doesn't fit. I think that, that you and I are in an experience that's kind of like that. The anxieties we experience, the challenges we face, we are constantly being reminded that this is not a comfortable fit. There's something, some place that, that we're going. This is not the final destination. And if we invest like this is it, uh, then I think what we, we don't end up in, with the reward that God intends. But if we, if we stop and say, this world is not my home. You might have even heard that song, I'm just passing through. Then we have the opportunity of investing in a kingdom that's going to last forever. Are you homesick for something more than you have? Do you have that longing in your heart? Do you see some sense that history is going somewhere and this place is not your final home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, no wonder the Bible says you know the end from the beginning. 
It's clear that you see things way in advance. Nebuchadnezzar's bedroom became a prediction for 2,600 years of history. You know the future. And we know because of that, that this world isn't an accident. And this place we're in right now isn't an accident. We believe that you're out there and you're steering history towards the moment when your kingdom will replace every worldly government. And so I I ask that you teach us to trust you and to give you our future. Teach us to trust you with our lives. And above all, Lord, we ask you to come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.